Well, thanks very much, Sue, and good morning, everyone. May I offer a prayer as we look into this passage of Scripture together. May God, our Heavenly Father, who brought everything that is into being by his word, may the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's living word, and may God, the Holy Spirit, who brings the word of God to life today, speak through and with his word so that we, each of us and all of us, may experience the riches of that life in him. Amen. Kid McCoy was an American boxer. He was a world champion, I think, 1898. He was once involved in a barroom brawl when a drunk refused to believe that Kid McCoy was who he said he was. Kid McCoy settled the matter with a single punch to the man's chin, sending him sprawling, and as the man struggled again to his feet... He said, yep, it's him all right. It's the real McCoy. (laughs) Well, that's my favorite version of how (laughs) that expression, the real McCoy, came, uh, uh, came down in history to us. But it raises the question, doesn't it? How can we be sure the person is who he or she say they are? Who is this couple, for example? Tourists or assassins? And how would you be sure? What about that? The one in the front I'm referring to just there. (laughs) (laughs) He says he's innocent of a sexual misdemeanor allegedly carried out many years ago. Uh, Christine Blasey Ford says he is guilty. I guess there's only two people in the world who know the truth, and that's him and her. But most Americans have an opinion on the matter. Now listen to this. Three quarters of men think that Brett Kavanaugh is, uh, was, is innocent, and three quarters of women think he's guilty which tells you nothing about Brett Kavanagh or Christine Blasey Ford and a great deal about human prejudice or bias. Uh, There's a similar divide uh, along political lines. Uh, Three quarters of uh, Democrats believe Christine Blasey Ford and three quarters of Republicans believe Brett Kavanagh. Tuck that pair of facts away for a moment. We'll return to those a little later. But certainly our Bible passage this morning from John chapter uh, chapter 7, please do have it open in front of you in a church Bible. It's uh, mostly on page 1072. 1072, John chapter 7, 25 to 52. Raising the question, who is Jesus? How can we know? How can we be sure? The most 
celebrated person in history, the most influential person in history, surely there is a need to look into the matter and to see if we can determine who this man is. Many years ago, a famous Christian writer called C.S. Lewis uh, made the following proposition. He said, when you look at the life of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, it really comes down to three possibilities. Either he's a liar, he's just making it all up, and he knows he's making it all up, or he's a lunatic, he's a madman, just out of his mind, or he's Lord. What he said and did was the truth. And so the liar, lunatic, or Lord, or mad, bad, or son of God, an expression that even found its way, if you're paying attention, to the Riding Lights uh, presentation last Sunday evening, has uh, come down and is used by many uh, writers and preachers, including myself, and some of you will have heard it in recent weeks. However, that analysis that Jesus was one of these three things um, has come in for some criticism, Uh, uh, from people like Richard Dawkins, who says, well, actually, you know, there's other options, other things that conceivably Jesus might have been, apart from a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Um, And uh, C.S. Lewis is therefore rubbished because of the incompleteness of that little proposition. Um, Now, I don't think that Lewis ever intended it to be a complete survey of all possible opinions about Jesus Christ, I do think, um, prompted by our passage this morning, that we might just glance at what some of these other options might be. So here is a a variety of crowds, at least three groups of people here in uh, John chapter 7. We've got people from Jerusalem, we've got pilgrims, and we've got the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so on, uh, all jostling for an idea as to who this man is. And it's such a question that it, they actually come out with it, uh, with, the, with the question, uh, full on, full in your face, in chapter 8, and I think verse 25, when they say to Jesus, who are you? <laughs> I hope the question at least bothers us, interests us, fascinates us. Because the one thing we cannot afford to do with this, with this man is to say, it doesn't matter. But anyway, looking at this chapter and looking a bit beyond the, uh, the, uh, the, the quite lengthy section that Sue read so effectively for us a few moments ago, just taking in a few things, that, ideas that come from earlier in the chapter in particular, some are saying that he's a miracle worker. Well, in verse 3, Jesus' brothers were saying, you, you know, you really need to go along and impress your disciples with your miracles. That's the thing that really counted for his brothers. But in verse 5, we realise that they had, these brothers had an ulterior motive in that they were convinced that Jesus was mistaken. Uh, he may have been a miracle worker, but in terms of these, these profound and extravagant claims that he kept making for himself, especially in terms of where he comes from and where he's going, they simply couldn't accept. His brothers, even his brothers, didn't believe in him. Another option uh, touted in this chapter is that he was and is a mere man. You can see some people concluding in verse 12. 
that this is the case. He's, he's a good man. Well, few people would dispute that. But if that's all we're saying about him, then we're saying he's a mere man, albeit a good one. What else uh, do we find here? Well, the Im- implication that Jesus is a madman. This is C.S. Lewis's idea of a lunatic. Um, actually, what this says, he's, he, he's demonised. Uh, but they think one way or another he's off his silly mind. He is, uh, he, he's a ma- he madman. Cannot be trusted, cannot be believed. He's, he's simply not sane for some reason or other. There's also the idea going on in this chapter that Jesus is a menace. Otherwise, why are they trying to arrest him? Why are they trying to kill him? He, they obviously regard him, the leaders in particular, as a menace to their society, to their country, and to their religion. Others are thinking, well, maybe actually he is the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one, the one whom God is sending to deliver his people. Could it be? He's asked as a question rather than affirmation, but still the idea is being entertained. Now, here's a couple that are not directly mentioned in the chapter, but they are around in our society today amongst critics of Jesus Christ and of God um, who will uh, say perhaps that, well, it's all just a myth. It's all just a legend, all just made up. Let me just tell you, there are very, very few historians of whatever, wherever they are in the spectrum of faith, strong faith or no faith at all, who will say there is never such a person as Jesus of Nazareth, who died under Pontius Pilate. You can find one or two, but they are extreme exceptions to the rule. Even sillier, while I continue to ransack the letter M, (laughs) is the idea that Jesus was a Martian. In other words, that he is an alien, looking at the stories. If you have a vivid enough imagination, you can say, well, yes, he's a remarkable character, did some very strange things. Maybe he came from somewhere, not from this world, not from this planet. Mars, Venus, somewhere else. I mean, you need a vivid imagination to do that. It's silly, but uh, it has been proposed. No wonder, then, that by verse uh, 43, they're really expressing that Jesus is is, is a mystery. Who, Who can tell? There's a division among the people because... Of Jesus. They are divided. Is he this? Is he that? Is he something else? They are divided about who he is. Now, as we ourselves are faced with this, um, what's the right word, smorgasbord <laughs> of opinions about Jesus, we, of course, are faced with a question for ourselves. How are we to decide amongst this whole range of options? Maybe none of this. Maybe there's some other options that we haven't thought of uh, this morning. How we decide. Or you might want to put it like this. Jonathan, if there's all these other opinions, some of which are held by people better and brighter than you, Jonathan, why should we believe you when you tell us who you think Jesus is? Well, the good news this morning is I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to look at it, look into it for yourself. And from this passage, I I venture to give you a few hints, a few guidelines, a few pointers as to how you might come to of your own view about who Jesus is. First of all, 
I would like us all to be alert to prejudice. Be alert to prejudice. Now, prejudice is one of those things... Well, there's a definition. Prejudice, uh, a preconceived opinion not based on reason or actual experience. Prejudice expresses itself like this. I have made up my mind. Please don't confuse me with the facts. Because one of the dangers about prejudice is that we see it so clearly in other people and not in ourselves. You know, I have convictions, you have opinions, they have prejudices. Somebody, uh, again, put it like this, that uh, much of the time we think, we imagine that we are thinking when in fact we are merely rearranging our prejudices. So let us all be aware, be alert to the reality of human prejudice. Along the lines upon which large sections of the American public have made up their mind about Brett Kavanaugh and his innocence or guilt, when they actually don't know. In this passage, we see prejudice, I think, in at least three ways coming through. First of all, there's confused expectations. They're very concerned about where Jesus comes from. And on the one hand, they're saying in verse 27, or some people are saying verse 27, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he where he is where he is from. But we know where Jesus is from, whether well, he is from Nazareth. So therefore he can't be the can't be the, the can't be the Christ. That's one theory. But there's a conflicting theory in verse 42, when they say, Well, we know that when the Messiah comes, he'll come from Bethlehem in Judea. We know that he comes from Nazareth in Galilee. So he can't be the but see the conflict. They can't agree because they actually don't know their scriptures well enough. And that's a criticism of Jesus that he actually articulates in the earlier section, the one that, um, that uh, Richard dealt with uh, last Sunday morning, where Jesus is saying uh, concerning healing on the Sabbath, your problem is not that you're taking the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, too seriously. Your problem is you're not taking them seriously enough. You're picking and choosing your texts, your proof texts. I want you to look at the whole message and the whole spirit and the whole text and then base your beliefs on that. So it is here that they have confused expectations based on a partial or biased knowledge of scripture. Another lovely one comes up in in verse 48, an example of prejudice, what I call a spurious appeal to authority. Can you see that for yourself? where uh, some temple guards and temple police have been sent out to arrest Jesus, and they come back empty-handed, and so the leaders, the Pharisees and so on, say, well, why haven't you brought him with you? And they give their reason, well, nobody ever spoke like he did. And they don't respond to what they say at all, the Pharisees. They go on to another subject. Oh, um, uh, beg your pardon, I'm giving the wrong example here. Nicodemus, um, uh, one of the Pharisees, stands up uh, on behalf of Jesus um, and, and, and their accusation to Nicodemus when he speaks sense and speaks truth is, so you from Galilee too. They can't bring themselves to believe that anybody 
any good man, certainly no Messiah, can come from up north where they speak funny. Yeah, from, uh, from Grimsby, from Middlesbrough, from Dewsbury, surely not. A spurious appeal to authority. Concerning the first of these, by the way, confused expectations, I was very struck by a remark that Mike Hume made at Prayer Focus on Wednesday evening, speaking about um, a little training day that's coming up, which I do encourage you to think about attending, um, called um, The World on Our Doorstep, about working as Christians and as a church with those from, uh, from overseas, students and others, um, Mike made the very striking comment that it's often so much easier to talk to an overse- a person from overseas about the Christian faith compared with trying to talk to somebody from the UK about the Christian faith. And Mike gave this reason. Because people from this country think they already know what Christianity is all about. And our job as would-be evangelists and apologists for the Christian faith, is to ask the question, do you actually know, do you really know, or do you just think you know what the Christian faith is all about? Have you actually read any of the Gospels, or even a part, a section of any of the four Gospels? Then come back and let's have a conversation about what Christianity is about. And then another good one is... uh, is uh, in, uh, in there. I've dealt with that. There is a spurious appeal to uh, authority uh, that is uh, the temple guards coming back to the Pharisees and the Pharisees saying, none of us have believed in, none of the Pharisees have believed in him, nobody in authority believes in Jesus, uh, why should anybody else believe? And can I just say that today there's often a spurious appeal to authority. Sometimes the, to the supposed authority of science and let's just bear in mind that science and religion or science and theology only overlap to a limited extent. They deal with different questions because they, uh, they give different answers because they deal with different questions. But even more striking today is the appeal to celebrity. We're very much in a celebrity culture uh, today, aren't we? And uh, it seems to me to very, very strange and to be questioned that somebody who is talented at making us laugh like Stephen Fry or Ricky Gervais, should be treated or should view themselves as some kind of authority pontificating about the God they say they don't believe in. I think we should question that spurious appeal to the authority of celebrity. So let's be alert to prejudice. Let's secondly consider the evidence. Two things going on in this chapter. There's the evidence of Jesus' works which are beginning to impress people. Do you see in verse 31? Many in the crowd put their faith in him, saying, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? And in John's Gospel, these signs, these miracles of Jesus, are very important. There is something better than simply putting your faith in the signs, but they certainly, as signs, point to Jesus. And they certainly had an impression on these people. How profound, how long-lasting this faith was, I don't know. But it certainly made an impression on them as they considered Jesus' works. 
And then there's also Jesus' words um, referred to in verse 46, when these uh, temple police come back, having failed to arrest Jesus, explaining the reason nobody ever spoke like this man. It was his words, his teaching, which were so out of this world, it couldn't fail to impress. Let us ourselves honestly consider the works and the words of Jesus and see where that evidence is pointing. And let us consider following, seriously consider following where that evidence leads. And there's one in this chapter who appears just towards the end who does really appear to be following the evidence. And that's Nicodemus. You perhaps remember that we first met Nicodemus, himself a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders. We first met him in chapter 3. And he makes a private approach at night, just quietly, saying, we know you're a teacher sent from God. Nobody else could do what you do. And Jesus gives him that great teaching about being born again, being born from above. Nicodemus has made his first tentative approach. But now he's standing up, still as a member of the, uh, of the religious leaders, but making a tentative but a very real public defence. Again, appealing to the scriptures. Is it right to condemn a man without first considering uh, the case before us, without first considering the evidence, without listening to the witnesses, he says? And that's where they insult Nicodemus by saying, oh, you must be from Galilee too. But by the time we reach the end of John's Gospel, Nicodemus has moved through to an active commitment. He's one of two who come along after Jesus had been crucified and take the body and give it a decent burial. He is now siding with this man and his cause and his followers. I think that John's Gospel from beginning to end wants us to know that sometimes coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a step-by-step process. Yes, it can be instantaneous, just overnight. It was in my case. But it can be a step-by-step process as somebody goes through these kinds of stages about setting aside prejudice, looking at the evidence, and then following where that evidence leads. So where does this lead? All of this discussion and controversy and disagreement about Jesus. As far as this chapter is concerned, where does it lead lead to? What does it add up to? Well, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, this was the Feast of the Tabernacles, the last of seven days. On each of those seven days, water would be brought from the Pool of Siloam to the altar in the temple and poured out there each morning as a thanks to God for a previous harvest and as a prayer to God for the future harvest. Lord, you have given us rain in the past. Give us rain again in the future. Now, on the last and greatest day of the feast, with so much excitement going around, so many people observing this ceremony, and this would either be the seventh of these days or the day after the eighth day, Jesus stands up, and it says here in a loud voice, look, folks, he shouted. He shouted these words. (laughs) Very publicly. I'll read it in that version. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And John explains that what's being referred to there is the Holy Spirit who will be poured out in superabundance after Jesus' glorification. That is to say, after Jesus' death and resurrection. Here is a wonderfully simple and straightforward need being referred to. If anyone, anyone thirsts, says Jesus, it is for anybody who thirsts. Not for any religious person, not for any clever person, not for any uh, good person, for anybody who feels their need, who thirsts. And here's an invitation What an astonishing, what an outrageous invitation. What other religious leader in any age could stand up and boldface say, come to me? But that's precisely what Jesus says. He says, come to me. And then look at the promise. Out of his heart. Now, I don't know because there's no punctuation in the original whether it means out of Jesus' heart will flow or out of the believer's heart will flow, I don't think it made a huge amount of difference. I think that the Holy Spirit, as taught in Scripture, flows to and through the one who believes in Jesus. So I'm happy with either approach, really. But the promise is of streams, of rivers of living water. Not just bits of water, carry, of fairly static water, carried from the pool of Siloam but rivers, oceans of water. I would like us this morning to commit ourselves to two responses to this wonderful promise. I'd like us to respond with thankfulness. Sometimes we wonder, don't we, do we see rivers of living water flowing in and to and through us at Holy Trinity? Well, yes. Every act of kindness done in the name of Jesus to a Sophie or to anybody else, any word of truth pointing to Jesus and his gospel, anything in short that serves God, his people, and his world is a response to the flow of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. Let's be thankful for the Holy Spirit without whom We would be nothing, we could do nothing. I want us to respond also with thirst. Are we thirsty? Are we thirsty enough to say, actually, I'm going to set aside the things I think satisfy me in this world. I want to come to Jesus. Or if you're a believer, I want to come afresh to Jesus. That I may experience afresh these streams, these rivers of living water. Let us pray. Lord, I come to you now in my need and in my thirst. Fill me, fill us, fill this place, fill this church with your living, your life-giving water, the water of the Holy Spirit. And may we know afresh that life, that power, that goodness that comes only from you. Amen.